It's January of 1959. A train is hurtling through the snow-covered mountains of the Soviet Union. And on board is a young man, an engineering student named Igor Dyatlov. The plan to ski, cross-country ski across the Ural Mountains in one of the coldest, most forbidding areas, something that he believed no Soviets had ever done before. Joining Dyatlov are eight of his classmates. And also, one person the university had added to the trip at the last minute. He's in his late 30s. He's a World War II veteran. He's got crowns on his teeth. He's covered in tattoos. He is a bit of an odd man out. But, you know, that was fine. As they head deep into the Ural Mountains, the whole group is in really high spirits. They hid under the seats of the train to avoid paying for tickets. One of them was a mandolin player, and he was a very funny guy. In one of the train stations, he was arrested for playing the mandolin and and pretending to beg for coins. And so the, the cops took him in and had to talk their way out of it. It was going to be a 16-day trip, and they were going to cross the mountains to a little town on the other side where they were going to telegraph that they'd arrived. Well, the telegraph never came. This adventure would end in one of the most gruesome and terrifying tragedies that I've ever come across in my life. I'm Dylan Thuris, and this is Atlas Obscura celebration of the world's strange, incredible, and wondrous places. For more than 60 years, the disappearance of Igor Dyatlov and his group in the Ural Mountains has been one of the most puzzling and unsolvable of all the mysteries to come out of the Soviet Union. So for the next two episodes of Atlas Obscura, we will explore why the bizarre details of this particular case have inspired wild theories for decades. Everything from secret radioactive weapon labs to UFOs to the KGB to a Yeti. And we'll look at how multiple investigations have only deepened this mystery. What really happened to Igor Dyatlov and his party? First, we examine the facts of the case and head into the mountains after this. If you're looking for a place where the wide open skies and the towering mountains inspire you to find an untapped part of yourself, you might want to take a trip to Wyoming. It's a place where bold, curious spirits forge their own way on all types of adventures. There is no shortage of iconic, expansive landscapes out there. You can discover breathtaking hikes, stunning state parks, authentic Western culture, and other historic sites— along with the tales of famous outlaws like Butch Cassidy and pioneers like Buffalo Bill Cody. The truth lies west. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. I've always been attracted to stories that are a mystery, that don't have an answer. And every time I pick up one of these stories, I think, well, maybe I'll find the answer. But I never do. (laughs) This is Douglas Preston. He is an author and a journalist who's covered all kinds of 
strange and unusual happenings over his career, largely reporting for magazines like The New Yorker. He's covered things like a lost tomb in the Valley of the Kings in Egypt or a lake full of mysterious skeletons. We'll probably actually have him on to talk about that again at some point. Anyway, he's collected a bunch of his journalistic work in a brand new book called The Lost Tomb. The stories themselves are fascinating, and many of them are inexplicable or really strange Mm. and freaky. But of all the stories that Doug has covered, maybe the strangest, the weirdest, the freakiest story of them all is the one that happened in a place called Dead Mountain in the Soviet Union in 1959. I must have come across it about 20 or 25 years ago. And it absolutely fascinated me because it's so inexplicable. You can dream up so many different theories and none of them work. None of them fit the facts. And has it been solved? Well, you know, that's a matter of debate. So let's go back to where we left off in February of 1959. All of the friends and family waiting for a message from Dyatlov and his party, they never received the telegraph that they were promised. So they call the police, and a search party is sent to comb the mountains. Put us in the shoes of one of the search party. What, what do they discover when they get to this scene? They found their tent um, above the tree line on a mountain called Dead Mountain. Here is this tent, uh, partially buried in snow, And they opened up the tent, and inside everything is in order. Their axes, their clothing, their boots are all laid out. There's food laid out as if they were in the middle of a meal. And the tent is slashed. Later, they determined that the tent had been slashed from the inside. But about 100 yards from the tent, going downhill, they found footprints of eight or nine individuals. But what really surprised them was that these were not people wearing boots. They were, most of them were barefoot or wearing socks. And it seems like the more they looked, the more these bizarre details started to emerge. Yeah, this is where it really gets weird. They followed the footprints about a mile to the tree line and they found a big cedar tree and underneath the tree was the remains of a fire And two of the dead bodies, frozen solid of the hikers, were sprawled next to the fire, uh, dressed only in their underwear. So then they widened their search, and they found two more bodies, Dyatlov's and another, on the slope. It looked like they were heading back for the tent, also frozen solid. So that was the first thing. So those four bodies were then taken off for autopsies. They couldn't find the rest of them. And the autopsies immediately revealed bizarre, just absolutely bizarre things. Quick disclaimer. This is going to get a little bit graphic. Uh, All four of the bodies were covered with little cuts and bruises, minor, everywhere. Several were severely burned. For example, uh, the two that were by the fire showed third-degree burns uh, on uh, different parts of their body, the head, the feet, the shins. Since it was winter, there was too much snow on the mountains to keep going. 
So the search party returns a few months later when it's starting to melt. What happened was they found what looked like the remains of a snow cave about 250 yards from the cedar tree. So they dug down and they found four bodies lying face down in a stream, right, pretty much right on top of each other. Those bodies were autopsied. The uh, autopsy wrote that these were very puzzling injuries that looked like they'd been hit by a truck with all these massive internal injuries, but the skin wasn't broken. And this is another bizarre thing. No one was ever able to answer this question, but somebody made the decision to send some of the clothing off to test it for radiation. And the test came back and my God, the clothing had unnatural levels of radiation that could only have come from either nuclear weapons or a nuclear power plant. This is radiation of a type that does not exist naturally on Earth. So let's recap this bizarre scene. There was a tent with the food and supplies undisturbed that had been slashed open from the inside. A short ways away, there are the remains of a fire. And there are two dead bodies around the fire, covered with minor cuts and bruises. Heading back to the tent, there's two people frozen in place. And the bodies of the remaining four are found in a snow cave, in a stream, covered in horrific injuries. And the bodies test positive for radiation. Okay, so this is all really quite weird. But then it gets even weirder. They recovered five cameras from these individuals. The film was in the cameras and they developed the film. Okay. And so we have all these wonderful photographs of them on the trip, beginning the trip, skiing, going through the woods, laughing, throwing snowballs at each other, you know. And then you get to the end of the rolls of film and you see a couple of photographs that are uh, kind of disturbing. Uh, The first series is of them entering a snowstorm. You see them skiing into the storm. Uh, It looks like they're skiing into hell itself. And then you have a picture of them as digging out an area to pitch their tent. Um, Another camera roll had a photograph that showed what appeared to be lights and things in the sky, the glowing, blurry things in the sky. And another one had, as a last photograph, a blurry picture of what either could be a skier coming through the woods or some, a Yeti or some beast. So those photographs aroused a tremendous amount of interest and theories. This quickly becomes a a murder investigation. How how do the Soviet authorities sort of approach this case? That's right. It immediately became a murder investigation, and they assigned a prosecutor to it, Lev Ivanov. Uh, He would feature later, much later, in the conspiracy theories. And in the end, he determined that they were natural deaths. But he never determined how they died. His conclusion was that they died from, quote, an overwhelming force, which they were not able to overcome. 
Well, what what the heck does that? Mean? I mean, yeah. talk about talk about fuel for conspiracy theories. Uh, you know yeah. that phrase has gone down in Soviet history. After Ivanov's conclusion, the Soviet authorities said, "Okay, case closed," and they classified all the information and kept it locked away. And that was the situation for about 40 years. In the meantime, the families were not satisfied. So people started coming up with their own explanations. One in particular, focusing on the oddball who had been added last minute to the party. Maybe the guy was some kind of spy or secret agent. And the expedition was actually all just a KGB cover. The theory that developed in the absence of a lot of evidence was that somehow this either involved uh, secret military weapons tests by the Soviet military or the CIA, the KGB, uh, some kind of uh, incident that occurred there. But then in the late 1980s and early 90s, the Soviet Union started collapsing, and suddenly all the files from the Dyatlov incident became public. And Doug says, they're all up on the internet, by the way. The written files, the photos, everything. That's when things really got exciting. And it was really triggered by, in 1990, the former prosecutor, Lev Ivanov, wrote an article. And the article caused a sensation. He said that the reason he concluded that it was overwhelming force and never went farther is because what he discovered was, was suppressed. He said that, that, in his opinion, these burns were caused by uh, aliens, by a UFO, some kind of uh, alien energy weapon that killed these people, and so on and so forth. That caused a sensation. <laughs> it would, yeah. <laughs> And those were not the only two theories. From the reasonable to the crazy. I mean, I'll just go through some of them. All right. Yeah. Avalanche. Sure. Okay. Well, maybe there was an avalanche. Well, that's a problem because photographs of the tent show that the tent poles were still standing up. There were uh, ski poles and skis still standing in the snow. Uh, and, and the avalanche would have wiped all that out. Another popular theory, and my personal favorite, was that the skiers heard this sort of low-frequency sound that was caused by the wind and geography called infrasound. And infrasound caused them to panic and leave their tent in an in a emergency state. I still like that one. Infrasound is crazy. L- look it up. Anyway, there's a bunch of others. Carbon monoxide poisoning. Death by... Yeti, maybe even a drug overdose. Maybe they took psychedelic mushrooms and were all having a, uh, like a hallucinogenic, a bad trip. But obviously, as all these theories are swirling, the families of the skiers haven't gotten any closure. They haven't gotten any kind of definitive explanation from the government about how their loved ones died. The families created a foundation And this foundation began agitating the government to reopen the investigation. Well, in 2019, um, in response to the families, in response to the foundation, 
the Russian prosecutor general's office reopened the case. And instead of it just being a homicide case, the chief prosecutor, whose name was Andrei Kuryakov, was given a mandate of finding out what really did happen. Please find out what happened. On the next episode of Atlas Obscura. He went on television to announce, case closed, we've solved it, and here, here's the answer. And he proceeded to lay out his explanation. And it caused an absolute uproar in Russia because it did not agree with Russian opinion at all. That story in part two. Our podcast is a co-production of Atlas Obscura and Stitcher Studios. This episode was produced by Amanda McGowan. The production team includes Doug Baldinger, Chris Naka, Camille Stanley, Manolo Morales, Baudelaire, Gabby Gladney. Our technical director is Casey Holford. This episode was mixed by Luce Fleming. If you want to learn more, be sure to visit atlasobscura.com. There's a link in our episode description. And our theme and end credit music is by Sam Tyndall. I'm Dylan Thuris, wishing you all the wonder in the world. I will see you next time. The world isn't wide enough for those with an insatiable desire for discovery. The all-new 2024 Lincoln Nautilus Hybrid SUV offers the power and freedom to explore further and deeper than ever before. Intuitive, smart features ensure that you're always connected to the road ahead. Inside, a thoughtfully designed cabin immerses you in a universe that is all your own. The larger-than-life panoramic display spans the entire width of the cabin. It's customizable and interactive. Drivers can even personalize their backgrounds with a series of nature-inspired themes. This vehicle signals the arrival of an exciting new chapter for Lincoln. Discover more about the 2024 Lincoln Nautilus at Lincoln.com. Hi, I'm Willa Paskin, the host of Decoder Ring, Slate's podcast about cracking cultural mysteries. On Decoder Ring, we dive down rabbit holes and obsessively explore questions hiding in plain sight. Like, why has slow dancing gone out of style? And when did we all become obsessed with hydration? And where did the word mullet, you know, to describe a hairstyle, come from? That's Decodering, named one of the best podcasts of 2023 by the New York Times. Listen to new episodes every two weeks and make sure to follow us so you never miss one.